Holy Spirit in We will start tonight chapter 16 from the Gospel of St. Matthew. And this chapter is one of the very important chapters in the scripture because in this chapter the confession of St. Peter was mentioned and this confession actually is the foundation of the church. That's why when we consecrate any church, actually this chapter is the chapter that we read in the prayers of consecration. Also this chapter speaks about the cost of discipleship. We can actually divide this chapter into four sections. The first section when the Pharisees and the Sadducees asked the Lord Jesus Christ for a sign. And actually they were not asking for a sign, but rather because of their hypocrisy, they were just testing the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, also, second part, when he warned the disciples to beware of the heaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and how the disciples misunderstood him, they thought that he was speaking about bread, but he was speaking about the teaching and the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees. The third section is the confession of St. Peter, when the Lord asked them, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And the disciples mentioned different answers. Then he asked them, and who do you say that I am? And Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the Lord actually said that he will build his church upon this confession, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Then the last section of the chapter, when our Lord Jesus Christ spoke about his death and resurrection, and the cost of his discipleship and his coming in his kingdom. So let's start verse by verse. Let's read from verse 1. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and tested him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. This actually the second time that the Lord Jesus Christ was asked to produce a sign, to prove his authority, to prove that he is a Messiah. The first time was in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, and this was the second time in Matthew chapter 16. Who are the Pharisees and Sadducees? Pharisees actually were the most considerable sect among the Jews because it included all the learned men of the Jews, and actually they grew after them majority of the Jewish people. Uh, and as you know, St. Paul himself was one of the Pharisees. Sadducees actually derived their name from their grandfather, Saduk, uh, and also their teacher. He lived about 200, 260 years before Christ, and he was the blessed processing dream. So all the disciples that followed his all the disciples 
teaching what called the Sadducees. Actually, the Pharisees and Sadducees were opposed to each other in many, many things. For example, Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. But in spite of their differences, they were united in one thing, to test the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, That's why they came and asked for a sign. All the miracles, all the teachings, all the prophecies that were fulfilled in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ did not satisfy them. They asked a sign uh, for their own, according to their own choosing, according to their own desire to satisfy their curiosity, not actually to believe, but as the Bible tells us, in order to test him. Verse 2, he answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be full weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the sign of times. Knowing their hypocrisy, and they just want to test the Lord Jesus Christ to satisfy their curiosity, uh, the Lord did not give them any answer except to the answer about the signs of weathers and the signs of days. And here actually there is a great lesson, lesson to us. When we belittle the signs of God and we want signs according to our own desire, we are hypocrites. We are like the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees who wanted actually to discredit Jesus Christ in front of the people. St. John Chrysostom said, if they were asking a sign in order to believe, definitely the Lord Jesus Christ would provide the sign. But they asked a sign just to satisfy their curiosity. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ did not give them a sign. Actually, what did his answer mean? He told them, now you can read the signs of weather. So you can say today the weather is good and fair, no today is the weather is threatening. So how can you read the signs of weather, but at the same time you cannot read the signs of times? What are the signs of times? The miracles, the prophecy that was fulfilled in him, his ministry, his preaching, all this actually indicate that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. But until now we are asking for a sign. So how can you read the signs of day, sign of time, uh, sign of weather, but you cannot read the signs of times. If you are the teachers of the scripture, you should know uh, how the prophecies 
are fulfilled in me. That's why in verse 4 he told them, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. Why he called them adulterous generation? The Jewish people were represented actually or uh, symbolized as married to God. They are the bride of God. So when they don't leave him or when they drift away from him, they are like the disloyal wife for, that forsakes her husband and actually unite herself to another. In the same way, the religious leader of Israel, they are disloyal to God and actually united himself to Satan and sin. That's why he called them wicked and adulterous generation. And this also uh, can be applied for any believer who is drifted away from Christ. Because in the New Testament, we are the bride of Christ, and Christ is the bridegroom. So when we choose to drift away from Christ and follow other idols in our life, whether it is love of money, love of pleasures, uh, love of uh, ego and pride, actually this person will be adulterous, as the Lord said, wicked and adulterous generation. Then actually he told them, I will give you a sign. And this sign is the sign of Jonah, the prophet. What did he mean by this sign? Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. And after this, actually, he came out alive. He did not die. And this sign is a sign, a symbol of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as if he told them, in few years, one or two years, you will see me dying and in the tomb and on the third day I will rise from the dead. And this actually will be the proof for you that I am the Messiah. Because this could not hold me. The gates of Hades could not actually prevail against me. So, Maybe when you see me on the cross, when you see me buried in the tomb, you will actually doubt my divinity. But when you see my resurrection, this will be a proof that I am Christ, the Son of God. Because God is the author of life, and He is immortal. So this cannot withhold Him. And by the way, when we speak about the death of Christ, the most accurate terminology, we should say Christ accepted this unto him, not Christ died. What's the difference? Christ died may be like any one of us died, but accepted death means he gave permission to death to approach him. As he said, I will lay my soul by my own will and my authority alone. 
which means if Christ did not give permission to death to approach him, he wouldn't die because he is immortal. So he accepted death unto himself. So by dying and by uh, rising from death, this actually a very uh, uh, strong evidence that he is the Messiah. Then he left them and departed and also here is a lesson to all of us when the argument or the discussion is not edifying but rather it is a foolish discussion we should not continue an argument like this as St. Paul said avoid foolish discussions and foolish arguments Verse 5, now when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said to them, take heed and beware of the living of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, the conversation with the Pharisees and Sadducees had been on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. So they crossed from that side to the eastern side. And maybe because the disciples were taken by the conversation and by just being in the company of the Lord Jesus Christ, so they forgot even the necessities of life. They forgot to take bread with them. But here actually the Lord told them, beware of the living of the Pharisees. As the Lord intended by the word eleven here, the teaching of the Pharisees, the doctrines of the Pharisees, the hypocrisy, which can spread quickly like leaven. But the disciples actually misunderstood him. The figure of the leaven was suggested by their need of bread. So they thought that the Lord Jesus Christ was rebuking them because they did not bring bread with them. Actually, the Lord still was focused on the confrontation with the Pharisees and Sadducees. So, he wanted to warn the disciples not to follow the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees, not to follow their life example, not to follow their hypocrisy. That's why he told them, beware of the living of uh, the Pharisees. But the disciples are still more concerned about materialistic things more than the spiritual things.
reaction was upset and disappointed that after the disciples lived with, with him all this time and they realized what he said uh, during the temptation of the mountain, man shall not live by bread but by the word of God. How come after all these time, all this time, they still think about materialistic things more than spiritual things? That's why verse 8, but Jesus being aware of it, said to them, O you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the five thousand and how many baskets you took up, nor the seven loaves of the four thousand and how many large baskets you took up? How is it you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? but to beware of the living of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So here actually you can feel how Christ in his word, he was disappointed. Disappointed that the disciples still thought that Jesus Christ is speaking about materialistic things, about karma things. As if he's telling them, after all this time, you still don't understand me. Then he reminded them of two miracles. First miracle, when he fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, and they carried 12 baskets. And the second miracle, when he fed 4,000 with uh, seven loaves and few fish, and they carried seven baskets. As if he's telling them, how come you still think I cannot provide? Actually, I can provide for all your needs. So, how, how can you, you doubt that I can provide for your needs even if you forget to bring bread with you? So, he rebuked this, he rebuked them about this. Then actually, uh, he explained to them that he is speaking about their teaching, their doctrines, the doctors of the first and said to not about bread. Verse 12, Then they, the disciples, understood that he did not tell them to beware of the river of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So here actually, uh, once the, the Lord spoke to them and rebuked them, he enlightened their understanding, and immediately they understood he was not speaking about materialistic things, but about the doctrine, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Verse 13, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, uh, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am. There were two cities in Judea called Caesarea, one situated on the border of the Mediterranean Sea, and the other one that was mentioned here. This actually a city was enlarged and ornamented by Philip the Tetrarch, 
south of Herod. And this city was called Caesarea in honor of the Roman Emperor Tiberius Caesar. And to distinguish it from the other Caesarea, that's why it was called after Philip, Caesarea Philippi, uh, to distinguish from the other city that also was called Caesarea, because Philip is the one who enlarged it and ornamented This city is located near the base of Mount Hermon as the source of the Jordan in the northeast extremity of Palestine. So the Lord actually took his disciples away from the crowd, away from the Jews, because he would discuss with them a very important matter. And this passage that we are about to read right now, one of the very important passages in the scripture. Because as I told you, this holds the confession of St. Peter, which actually is the foundation of the church as we will need to study together. So the Lord asked them, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? Definitely he did not ask this question, not because he doesn't know. He is God, and definitely he knows what the people say. But actually he was opening a discussion in order to uh, talk to them about the confession of faith, to make them uh, express their faith in a very clear way, and also to confirm them and to strengthen them before he speaks to them about his suffering, his cross, and his resurrection. Verse 14, so he said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Many people actually believed that Jesus is John the Baptist. Even Herod himself, when he heard about uh, the miracles that Jesus performed, he said, this is John the Baptist, whom I killed, he rose from the dead. So it was a popular notion, uh, popular notion about Jesus that he is uh, John the Baptist. Also, the Jews knew that Elijah would come again. So some of them, he said, this is Elijah. Also, there was a belief that with the coming of the Messiah, the prophets will rise, uh, were to rise from death. That's why they said Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then the, the Lord actually asked them, who do you say that I am? Who do you? Why he said, who do you? The Lord actually was expecting different answer from the disciples than the rest of the people. Because they lived with him for a long time. They have seen him performing miracles. They heard actually his teaching. Also, they performed miracle by his authority when he said the twelve. And when, when he sends the 70, he gives them power over unclean spirits and to heal diseases and to cast out demons. That's why in verse uh, 15, he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of God. 
Jesus is the Christ. Let me explain this. What do I mean Jesus is the Christ? Jesus is his name. The birth name, Jesus. Christ is not a name. Christ is a title. Christ means the chrismated one, the anointed one. The Hebrew word Messiah means the anointed. In Arabic, Al-Masih means Al-Mansur, the anointed one. And all the prophecies spoke about a person who will come and be anointed as a king, as a prophet, and as a priest. Actually, as the king of kings, as the prophet with capital P, and as the high priest. It was impossible in the Jews to be a king and a priest at the same time. Why? Kings were from the tribe of Judah. Uh, priests were from the tribe of Levi. So you cannot be a king and a priest at the same time. But the Lord, because he came a high priest after the order of Marshe Sadeh, so he is the king of kings, he is the high priest, and he is the prophet. The prophet, because he declared things about God, the Father, to us. High priest, because he offered himself as a sacrifice, and he standing before God uh, to intercede on our behalf. <coughs> and king, because he established his kingdom, and transferred us from the kingdom of Satan, kingdom of darkness, to his kingdom. And he established his kingdom on the cross. So he is the king, he is the high priest, and he is the prophet. And he was anointed in the Jordan River, when the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. So the Holy Spirit anointed him. As we read in Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me. So, with a divine revelation, Peter saw the glory of Christ, saw that this glory is shining uh, 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 from him in the soul of Peter, that's why he acknowledged. And he said it actually like in language of worship, you are the Christ, you are the anointed one, you are the chrismated one, you are the Messiah about whom all the prophets prophesied. You are the one who actually will lead us to the kingdom of heaven. You are the son of the living God. You are the hypostasis of son who in the fullness of time became man in order to save us and redeem us. So, St. Peter actually expressed the faith of all the disciples of all the apostles. This confession of St. Peter is actually the foundation of Christianity. How can we say that this person is Christian or not? Actually, if he believes in the divinity of Christ. So, all Christians should hold this confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Some denominations, like Jehovah's Witnesses, like Mormons, we don't consider them Christians because they don't believe in the divinity of Christ. Because they cannot say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this actually confession of faith 
is the foundation upon which Christianity as the Church of Christ is built. Uh, the birth name of Peter is Simon, but here the Lord gave him the name of Peter, which means actually small stone, small stone. As we read in verse 17, Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So, first, the Lord told him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjonah. Why he called him by his birth name? In order to show uh, and to reveal to us how this person was very simple, was a fisherman, how when he lived with Christ and was enlightened by the Holy Spirit, God spoke in his heart and revealed to him mysteries of uh, the heaven and mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And this is not teaching of human beings, but this is revelation by God. That's why he told him, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my heavenly Father. So, the confession of St. Peter is not the fruit of human teaching, but it is revelation from God the Father. And here I want to uh, explain a very important point. When we speak about theology, theology is done only by revelation. We cannot do theology by speculation. What do I mean? We don't say because and since so and so and because this happened and because this happened so we came to this conclusion that Jesus is the Christ. That's what we call, you know, speculation or to do hypothesis and then we'll prove this hypothesis to be correct. We cannot do theology by this way. Theology is revelation from God. God reveals to us that's why here the Lord very clearly said to Peter, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The problem of people who deny Christ and deny his divinity and deny the existence of God, they want to do theology by deduction, to make a hypothesis and then to prove this hypothesis is right or wrong. That's why they stumble. And many religions cannot believe in the Trinity because their mind cannot accept the Trinity. They cannot accept the virginal birth of Christ. They cannot accept the divinity of Christ. They cannot accept the change of the bread and wine into blood and body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because they are doing theology by their mind, by studying. They want human teaching to reach this conclusion. But theology is done by revelation. If God said he is Trinity, 
triune God within Israel God. If God revealed to us that Jesus is the Messiah, He is the Son of God, then He is the Son of God. If Jesus Christ said, take, eat, this is my body, take, drink, this is my blood, then this is His body and His blood. As simple as that. That's why the Lord here put a very important principle in theology. He, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. My Father who is in heaven. Then the Lord said, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And this is the first time, actually, the Lord speaks about his church. And I want you to differentiate between three words. Peter, rock, and the church. Peter in Greek is Petrus. And Petrus means single stone. Small stone. Yes, it's very solid, very hard, but small stone. Uh, actually, those who study the anatomy of the skull, there is a small stone in the skull called Petrus bone, because this actually is the hardest bone in the body, and you cannot break it. So it's called Petrus bone. Uh, and this name Petrus was given to uh, Simon Peter by the Lord Jesus Christ when he chose him and called him to be one of the twelve disciples. Rock in Greek is not Petrus. Actually, Petra. Petra is a huge rock, solid, immovable rock, great mass, like a cliff. It's not just a small stone. So Petrus is a small stone, rock is uh, Petra. So the Lord said, you are Petrus, and upon this Petra, I built my church. So Petra cannot be Petrus. These two words are not synonymous. And the word church in Greek means ecclesia. Ek means out. Ecclesia called. So ecclesia means called out. So God called out of the world. So the church of God, the children of God, are not part of the world, but we are called out of the world. And we need to understand this. Because many of our youth, especially, they want to conform to the world. They are not comfortable to be different from the world. But if we understand that we are ecclesia, we are called out the world. You are not of this world, but you are called out the world. Yes, you will still be in the world, but you are not out of the world. That's the meaning of ecclesia. So ecclesia, it is a fellowship of the believers. It is the organized society of Christ. It is the kingdom of heaven on earth. It is the body of Christ. So, when the Lord said, upon this rock, what did he mean by the rock? Because there are many interpretations about what the word rock refers. Does the word rock refer to Peter or refer to what? The first explanation which actually is acceptable and it is a correct interpretation. <coughs> the rock refers to the confession of St. Peter. 
the confession you are Christ the son of the living God so the Lord said you are Potros and upon this confession that me is God me is Christ the Messiah the transmitted one upon this confession I will build my church so and actually uh, the church is built on this foundation as I told you uh, any church that does not keep this confession is not a Christian church and this confession will keep the church strong in the midst of persecution that's why the wrath of the gates of hell cannot and shall not prevail against the church that's built on this confession but another explanation of the word rock here which actually is an acceptable explanation and a correct explanation the rock refers to Christ himself Christ is called the rock in Isaiah chapter 28-16 Peter referred to the Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 8 as the rock so I can imagine the Lord Jesus Christ told him you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church. And as St. Paul said, there is no other foundation that, that, that we can lay other than Jesus Christ. So Jesus himself is the rock, is the cornerstone, is the foundation of the church. A third interpretation which is not acceptable, uh, they say that the rock refers to Peter himself. <coughs> But since the rock is the foundation of the church, the central principle, the fundamental idea, actually we cannot say the rock is Peter. Uh, we cannot say uh, Peter is the rock, while St. Paul said no other foundation can man lay other than Jesus Christ himself, as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. So Peter, the interpretation that Peter is the rock is wrong interpretation. So the rock can either refer to Jesus himself or to the confession that uh, Jesus is the Messiah. And these two interpretations actually complement each other. They are not contradicting one another. Jesus actually referred to himself many times as the stone, the stone that the builders rejected as we read in Matthew chapter 21, Mark 12, Luke chapter 20. In Ephesians chapter 2 we read that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Also, uh, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that Jesus is the spiritual rock that followed the Israelites. So, here is the faith in the, in the divinity of Christ. And this confession of faith is the foundation of our life and the foundation of the church. What do I mean the foundation of our life? Because what is the church? It is the assembly of the believers. You cannot grow in your spiritual life except if you have this faith that you will build your life on Christ. You will build your life on the teaching of Christ. You will build on, uh, your life on the uh, doctrines of Christ. So if you want to build your life on other teaching, 
or other philosophies other than the teaching of Christ, you are not the church. You are not the assembly of the believers. So we need to build our church, our ourselves, and our uh, spiritual life on the teaching of Christ. And this actually is the main difference between the children of God and the children of the world. So, who are you following? What are the principles that you are building your life on? What are the philosophies or teaching or doctrine that you make the choices of your life based on? If you make your choices or your decisions based on something else than the teaching of Christ and Christ is the Son of God, then you are not from the church. You are not from the children of God. You are from the children of the world. Uh, so, this actually is the essence of the teaching of the New Testament. That Jesus is the Son of God, and we build ourselves and we build our churches based on this foundation. Uh, this Lord said, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. If the rock refers to Christ, then actually he is saying, The gates of Hades shall not prevail against me. I will die, but I will accept this unto myself. Then Satan will try to take my soul to Hades, but he cannot, because I am Christ. I will bind Satan, and actually I will descend to Hades and conquer and destroy its gates, and destroy the bars of iron, and I will take the captives of Satan, I will take them and set them free, and transfer them to paradise of joy. So, during my death and my resurrection, you will see how the gates of Hades shall not prevail against this rock, against Christ. But Christ will destroy the gates of Hades, and actually he will release all these captains of Satan, he will release them uh, from the Hades. And if the rock actually, if, if uh, it refers not to the rock but the church, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. It can refer to the rock Christ or can refer to the church. So if it refers to the church, yes, the church may suffer persecution. The church may suffer oppression. But the end, the church will prevail. Hades cannot prevail against the church. The power of darkness Whatever Satan can do, actually, all these uh, powers of darkness in heaven cannot actually overcome the church. See directly here. All the, the, the emperors who persecuted the church, they died. And actually, paganism uh, disappeared from the world. But the church is still prevailed. The church is still strong in spite of all this uh, attacks and persecution against the church. 
So, by the promise of Christ, that the gates of his shall not prevail against the church, so neither idolatry, nor heresy, nor atheism, nor any uh, philosophy, nor any evil error, nor sin, cannot prevail against the church or against us, the assembly of the believers, the body of Christ. Verse 19, the Lord continued and said, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth will be lost in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Here God actually gave St. Peter, and not only St. Peter, but all the apostles, the authority of binding and losing. By this authority, the authority actually handed down from the disciples to their successors. And until now, the successors of the apostles had this authority to bind and to lose, to forgive and to absolve. This authority is exercised as follows. But refusing to absolve when the apostles or their successors see a person continuing his sin and refusing to repent, so here the, the church has authority to refuse to absolve. Also, to uh, give absolution and forgiveness of sins to those who are repenting. So he gives them the authority to refuse to absolve and also to forgive and absolve sins. Also, to excommunicate or suspend or prohibit based on, uh, as a discipline, as a form of discipline, but any discipline should be aimed at the end towards the salvation of the person. Any discipline should not be done in a spirit of revenge or anger, but any discipline sh should aim at the salvation of this person. Also, by this authority, the Church makes rules and laws for the government and administration of the Church, and by this authority, the Church determines what is true doctrine and what is wrong doctrine, as what happened in the Ecumenical Council. So, the authority uh, is exercised in five different ways. To, to refuse to absolve, to absolve and forgive, to discipline, to set the rules and regulations for the government of the church, and to differentiate between what is true doctrine and false doctrine. This authority to bind and lose was mentioned three times. This is the first time in Matthew chapter 16. It is repeated not only to Peter but to all the apostles in Matthew chapter 18 and was affirmed after the resurrection in John chapter 20 when the Lord breathed in the face of the disciples and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit, whatever sins you forgive are forgiven, whatever sins you retain, they shall be retained. 
Then actually the Lord said to the disciples, don't share with anybody that I am the Messiah. Because the time of his full manifestation to the world did not come yet. And at this time he did not want to provoke the malice of the Jews or the envy of the Romans. That's why he told them, don't announce it right now. Yes, you can teach and preach about the Messiah, but don't say that I am the Messiah. You need actually to wait. After my resurrection, this actually, this truth that I am the Messiah will be very clear in front of everybody. So wait until my resurrection and this, this truth will be actually uh, very clear uh, in front of everybody. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. The Lord actually made this announcement about his death three times. This was the first of three predictions that he uh, will suffer, he will die, and he will rise again. You can find the other two in Matthew chapter 17 and in Matthew chapter 20. So, Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 17, Matthew 20, in these three chapters, he uh, spoke about his death, his suffering, and his resurrection. Uh, the Lord never spoke about his death before, because he waited until their faith is strong enough that he is a Christ. He, their faith in his event is strong. Then actually when they are convinced of his divinity, he revealed to them that he will suffer and he will die, but he will rise again. And here the Lord actually is correcting a misperception about the Messiah. All the Jews, their thinking and their perception about the Messiah is an earthly king who will come and restore the kingdom of David. They did not understand that the Messiah will come to establish a heavenly kingdom on earth. Their understanding that he will come and establish an earthly kingdom. So the Lord here was creating their misperception that he did not come to, to restore the kingdom of David, the earthly kingdom of David, but to establish a heavenly kingdom on earth. His revelation about his suffering and death was actually in fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah that we read it in Matthew, uh, sorry, in Isaiah uh, chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52 was fulfilled in the word of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 16. And this actually denotes uh, a new phase in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why St. Matthew said, from the time on. From the time on, meaning a new phase in his ministry started by this uh, declaration uh, about his death, his suffering, and his resurrection. But the disciples did not take this very well, especially Peter. Verse 22, then Peter took him aside 
and began to rebuke him. Peter is rebuking Christ. Began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he, Christ, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Peter actually took him aside because out of respect to his teacher, he didn't want to rebuke him in front of the rest of the disciples. So he took him aside and he told him what you are saying is unexpected. Actually, all of us who are disappointed, who are looking that you will restore the kingdom of David and you will be our uh, king here and you are saying that you will die and suffer death from the scribes? No. This is not what we expect from the Messiah. And actually, uh, we know that the Messiah, when he comes, he will actually gather the scattered people of God. So our expectation, as Ezekiel said in chapter 34, you will come and gather all of us and actually you, you will set us free from the Roman Empire, and you will be our king. But now you are saying that you, you will suffer from the religious leader and from the Romans, and you will be crucified, and you will die. Where is your authority? We know that the Messiah has authority over everybody. The religious leaders have no authority over Christ. We know this. So, as in the Old Testament, in Leviticus chapter 10, fire came from heaven and consumed the two sons of Aaron. Why don't you set fire and consume the scribes and Pharisees and all the religious leaders? This will not happen to you. This will not happen to you. But the Lord actually, when he heard Peter, he rebuked Peter by saying, Get behind me. Because the words of Peter here were in opposition of God's plan. And the word Satan means adversary or the opponent. So any person who opposing the work of God or the plan of God, actually this person is under the influence of Satan. Any person who is opposing the plan of God or the ministry of, of God, then this person actually is under influence of Satan, because Satan is the opponent. So God actually is telling him, get down, me Satan. God is not saying that Peter is Satan, but God is rebuking Satan who spoke on the mouth of Peter. I told you, Peter at this moment was under the influence of Satan. So God actually is rebuking Satan who spoke on the mouth of Peter to protect Peter from the influence of Satan. And actually, if you go to the temptation of the mountain in Matthew chapter 4 verse 10, the same words, get behind me Satan, are the same words that are repeated here. So as if the Lord is saying to Peter, 
These words are words of Satan. Don't listen to Satan. Don't repeat what he says to you. You need to have the servant to uh, throw away the words of Satan and only to accept the revelation of God. And actually, if you study all the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord was never disappointed or used such statement, get mad me Satan, like in this situation. Why? Because the plan of Christ is to come to save us. That's why when Peter said, far be it from you, as if he is against the plan of saving the world, that's why Christ, you know, was very disappointed. I came for this moment. I came for this moment. So, Christ here made it very clear that this is the plan of God. Any person who is opposing this is not mindful of God. He is not fulfilling the economy of God, but actually he is mindful of men. They want just the earthly kingdom of David to be restored, so he told them, you are mindful of men, not mindful of God. And until now, whatever takes us from what is good, from the plan of God, this actually speaks the language of Satan. It speaks the language of Satan. So anything will take you away from your own salvation and the salvation of others, this is from Satan. Because that's what Satan is opposing. The word adversary or opponent, Satan means opponent, because he is opposing the salvation of the whole world and your own personal salvation. And here the Lord actually took it as an opportunity to teach them about the cost of discipleship. And as he will carry the cross, each one of us should also carry the cross. Verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Uh, here the condition of discipleship are presented. A true disciple means he will follow the steps of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as he lived his life, we need to live our life. As he suffers, then actually we should be willing to suffer for the name of Christ. That's actually the true disciple. And what is the cross that we should carry? It's the cross of self-denial. It is actually to deny your own will and to do the will of God. Don't follow your own will, but follow the will of Christ. Many times actually, it's very difficult, or most of the time, it's very difficult for us to deny our own will and to do the will of God. That's why he told us, Jesus Christ himself said in Gethsemane, I did not come to do my will, but your will. So Jesus actually came to fulfill the will of the Father. In the same way, we should not actually do our own will, but to do the will of the Father. Denying your will means
you should be ready to say no to the pleasures of the world if these pleasures stood in the middle of your own salvation to love of money to love of pride you should be to be saying well uh, no if uh, you are following one of these temptations of the world that's self-denial as the Lord said take up your cross and, and Luke actually he said that he didn't say take up your cross once in your lifetime but actually Luke take up your cross all the time being all the time this cross is the pain of self-denial this cross actually is to do the will of God even if we suffer the most painful death like the martyrs to do the will of God even if we suffer the most painful death that's actually to take our cross and to follow Christ follow Christ means actually to follow his teaching to follow his doctrine to obey his commandments to take the way to heaven as actually he took the way to heaven by his ascension so we should follow his footsteps until we reach uh, the heaven St. John Chrysostom in his commentary on this uh, passage he said as if Christ is saying don't expect O Peter that since you have confessed to me to be the son of God you are immediately to be crowned as if this were sufficient for salvation and that the rest of your days may be spent in idleness and pleasure for although by my power as son of God I could free you from every danger and trouble yet this I will not do for your sake that you may yourself contribute your glory and become uh, the more blessings so as if the Lord, after Peter made his confession, he didn't tell him this confession is enough. Many people say just believe and that's it. But after this confession, he told them, no, you need to deny yourself every day. And you need to carry your cross and you need to follow me. Deny yourself every day, carry your cross every day, and follow me every day in order actually to go to heaven. Then the Lord elaborated more, verse 25, and said, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whatever acts against your own salvation, or whatever you do in order to save an earthly, luxurious life for yourself. And this will distract you from your own salvation, then actually you will lose your eternal life. But actually if you sacrifice it, the luxurious earthly life, in order to focus on your eternal life, then actually you will win your eternal life. 
If you refuse to deny yourself and you want to actually to actualize your pride and your ego and to enjoy the pleasures and the riches of the world away from Christ, you will lose your eternal life. But actually, if you sacrifice your wealth and the pleasures of the world and the riches of the world and don't allow them to distract you from your goal, which should be Christ, then you will win your eternal life. This the Lord elaborated more. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So, practically, actually, nobody will win the whole world. But the Lord said, even if there is a person who can win the whole world, he can win all the riches of the world, all the honors of the world, all the pleasures of the world. And these are your goal. And you are pursue, pursuing all these goals, riches, pleasures, honor, ego of the world. On the expense of your own soul, then in the eternal life, can this world will help you? Absolutely not. So, if it doesn't make sense to win the whole world and to lose your soul, how much more? Actually, many of us losing our soul just for a small portion of the world. That's why the Lord said, what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? So, does anything, or is anything in the world uh, worth to be given in exchange of your soul? Pleasure, money, ego, honor. Nothing. Nothing. You should actually give in exchange of your soul. That's why uh, those who lose their life for Christ shall gain eternal life. And those who choose the world instead of Christ will lose their eternal life. Verse uh, 27 For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father and his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. So, after the Lord spoke about losing your life, denying yourself, you needed to hear some word of encouragement. So he told them, our life here on earth is just uh, temporary. But I will come again in my kingdom. I will come again in, in my glory and the glory of my Father with all the angels. And I will reward each one according to your words. So here he began to uh, give another doctrine, which is the doctrine of the second coming of Christ.
That is speaking about the second coming. So, you want to uh, make them believe that his second coming is not just a false uh, promise, but it is a real promise. So, he told them, some of you will not test this until see me coming in my kingdom. Which kingdom? Is he speaking about his second coming? No. But about actually like the down payment, the, the, the promise of the, uh, the, his second coming. The kingdom here can be interpreted in three different ways. So, uh, in verse 28, he's not speaking about his second coming to judge the world. The first interpretation of the kingdom is the day of Pentecost. Is the day of Pentecost. Uh, Mark actually in, in Mark chapter nine verse one, he spoke that the disciples uh, will see the kingdom of God will come with power. Uh, Saint Mark in his gospel when he spoke about the transfiguration. He, before speaking about transfiguration, in, in Mark chapter 9, verse 1, he said that the disciples will see the kingdom of God coming with power. The kingdom of God coming with power was fulfilled in the day of Pentecost, when the Lord said to the disciples, don't depart from Jerusalem until you see the, uh, uh, until you receive uh, power from on high. So, this kingdom can refer to this church, the beginning of the church, or the establishment of the church, which is the kingdom of Christ on earth, on the day of Pentecost. Uh, and according to the parable of the weeds and wheat that was mentioned in Matthew chapter 13, the kingdom of the Son of Man is the church. So, his kingdom is the church. Uh, and uh, the church was established on the day of Pentecost. That's why this word uh, kingdom may refer to the, to the day of Pentecost. Kingdom also can refer to the day of his crucifixion and his resurrection. Why? As we read in the Psalms, the Lord reigned on wood. So when he said, some of you shall not taste death until you see the Son of Man come in his kingdom, until you see him in his throne. And his throne is actually the wood of the cross. That's why on the twelfth hour of Good Friday, we chant your throne, O God, is forever. So, the kingdom second interpretation can be the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus' supremacy over the world will be established in his glorious resurrection when he defeated sin and death. The third interpretation is about the transfiguration. Matthew chapter 17 is started by the transfiguration. When the Lord actually revealed part of his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. So as if 
he is telling some of you, the three he took with him, James, John, and Peter, they will see a glimpse of my glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's why when he said those who will live to see the Son of Man come in his kingdom, either those who went with him in the Mount of Transfiguration or those who uh, uh, witnessed his resurrection and ascension or those actually who witnessed the day of Pentecost. So whether the kingdom refer to the Pentecost or refer to the, his transfiguration or refers to his resurrection and ascension, actually there is no contradiction, but these three complementing one another because as we know Jesus Christ started his kingdom uh, on the day of his crucifixion and he will reign over us until he delivers the kingdom to God the Father as we read in First Corinthians chapter 15. This concludes this chapter and as I told you in the beginning this chapter is one of the very important chapters in scripture because in this chapter the confession of St. Peter you are Christ the son of the living God is the foundation of our life and also is the foundation of the church. Glory